Welcome to Insight, Health Optimization with Rudy and Sean. Right, Sean, here we are again. Welcome. I must say the the first two has been awesome. It, it's been good for us as well. Um, as podcasts, we as Insight, we've uh, we've now done two podcasts that told us how we got here, and then pretty much then we started telling our listeners about the four horsemen. So pretty much the things that will kill you. So as as bad as it sounds, we are trying to engineer our lives to know what will be the things that will kill you. So then we said, we, we talked about the four horsemen. Uh, the four horsemen would be ACVD or arterial sclerotic cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, cancer, and then neurodegenerative disease or um, dementia. And so, we, that's the second podcast. We talked about what they, what the four are, and now we're talking about cardiovascular disease today. So cardiovascular disease will be probably, if you're a man in South Africa, will be the the one thing that will kill you. So um, again, like we said in the last podcast, we've again heard about young people dying before 50, just conking out, and it should not be. In that sense, um, there's, there's, we are sitting here because, Sean, you've got a personal story about cardiovascular disease and why it's so important for you. Yes, thank you, Rudy. Nice being back. I enjoy this hour of sitting and talking about the stuff that we like. Um, yes, my story uh, went for an insurance medical and uh, ended up with two stents in my LAD at a, a very young age, 42. And if you think about it, we know cardiovascular disease takes time to develop. So my disease must have started in my 20s, early 20s, even, even before, before then. Um, so I'm now on the road of secondary prevention. And secondary prevention for longevity, you really want to do primary prevention. So once you've developed a disease, then you go into the secondary prevention leg of longevity. And it's just more difficult managing secondary prevention. So we ideally want to do primary prevention. And therefore, one of the things for longevity is to prevent things to happen. So in my case, now I know I've got to raise lipoprotein little a. So go back in my 20s, if I knew then what I know now, I could have prevented the stents. Um, I'm not pointing fingers to anyone because 30 years back, very few doctors were doing preventative health and fewer even tested for lipoprotein little a. And especially in a young person of 28, 20 years old. And even these days, still very little. No, exactly. Um, but we, and, th and that's why we are here, because we want to change that. We want to put primary prevention on the radar and we want to go forward and prevent things like that happening to people. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly what you're saying. At, at the moment, there, there is primary prevention, especially for South Africans, there are primary prevention, or there is primary prevention, but we, um, you can actually engineer this. So, I mean, you can you can do so much. So, if we talk about cardiovascular disease, there's four big things that we have to that we have to consider. So, if if you want to take us through the big big things that, that yeah, so the, the big risk factors for cardiovascular disease, smoking, 
number one. High blood pressure, hypertension, number two. Then all around, all about lipids, and we'll talk a lot about lipids today as well. And then there's a fourth one coming on the radar, and that's metabolic disease. That is actually what we're trying to prevent with with the four things that you're saying is blood needs to get at an endpoint, and for blood to flow to your heart or to your brain, you need the pipes. And the pipes don't need to block up. That's what we're trying to say in layman's terms. And we are trying to stop the pipes blocking up. So those four things will cause blocking of your pipes. And we want to go through them one by one because some of them will chemically, like smoking, change the inside. Some of them will will uh, change mechanically, like blood pressure will hurt the pipes. And then we've got the, the other two that will also, a um, uh, little bit of chemical, but more uh, inside how you physiologically, on the inside, you can change things. So um, I'll maybe ask you uh, just to give us a little bit of an idea. So smoking, pretty easy. Um, uh, you must just stop. <laughs> That's uh, absolutely. And, 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 and as we mentioned in the previous podcast, smoking two to four times increased risk in cardiovascular disease, 40% increase in all-cause mortality. It's, there, there's no doubt that it's causal. Um, and as we said, smoking causes a chemical reaction to the, to the vessel lining. And if you think there's more than three, 4,000 different chemicals in cigarette smoke. So the damage of the smoke, it causes an inflammation process. It, it decreases nitrous oxides in the vessel. So the vessel's pliability is decreased. And it's got off-target off effects as well. So it will increase your, your blood pressure as well, which is the second risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And from the smoking, your blood cells will increase as well. So your, your viscosity of the blood um, becomes a problem. So you can form a clot easier. So there's a lot of things in, in, in smoking causing the risk for, for cardiovascular disease. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm coming back to what I said earlier. If you're a smoker, you have to stop. Um, if, if you don't want to stop, you must remember there is definitely a risk to that. Um, maybe then if we talk about blood pressure, I mean, most of us know the story and we as doctors sit there with our patients and we say, blood pressure of 135 over 90 in our offices, is it a problem or is it not a problem? So maybe take us through the data and say. I think so. First of all, there's two, we all know there's two values in, in, in blood pressure. You've got a, a systolic and a diastolic value. So that's the two numbers. And usually, you know, most people will know that the normal blood pressure is 120 over 80. So the 120 is the systolic part of the uh, blood pressure. It's when the, the, the heart contracts and causes the pressure, whereas the diastolic is when the heart um, relaxes and that's the pressure in the system then. So we refer to the two values and you, you get a systolic and a diastolic um, hypertension of high or increased blood pressure, high blood pressure, as people might say. Now, there's two things with high blood pressure. Is that how do we test it? Because I think that's very important, how, how we test for blood pressure. And we, we can talk about how we test for blood pressure. And then when is it actually raised? What, what do we see as, as high blood pressure? So on the testing side, and I think very few 
doctors actually do this right. Yeah. So there's three ways we can do it. There's the in-office, um, the, the at-home testing, or the 24-hour testing. So maybe we'll spend just a couple of minutes on the in-office testing, how it should be done. And then people can think if, if any of their doctors actually do it like this. Yeah, so I think one of the main things that you have to know is the size of your arm. There are different sizes of, of cuffs for different sizes of arms. So if your doctor has never measured your arm before he's put on a cuff, he, he, he's guessing. Um, a lot of the cuffs these days have got a, a marking. So just check that the marking, if it doesn't line up on your arm, it's probably not doing it correctly. Better way is then with your with the manual way. So if your doctor listens for the sounds, but again, the size of the cuff is more important than uh, the the manual versus automatic. In in my mind, no, absolutely. And also, you need to sit for five minutes before they do your blood pressure. You. Um, you can't exercise or smoke or drink coffee for half an hour before they take the measurement. And then you need to repeat three three readings in that time period, five minutes apart, basically, in office to get the correct value for your blood pressure. You can get the average of, of the three together. Now, most consultations in the GP practice is 15 minutes. So that means the whole consultation is just to do your blood pressure. And due to time constraints, that's not happening. So we all pop into the office, quick blood pressure, and that's your blood pressure. That's, that's a, a single view in a 24-hour period in the here, which is not adequate. Yeah. No, I think we both agree on this one. And that means that if we can get someone to do their blood pressure at home, that is probably the gold standard if you have the correct machine, which are mostly standardized these days, and you can have them at home and have recordings and actually Bluetooth it to your phone if necessary. And, and they're not that expensive. I mean, the other option is the 24-hour blood pressure measurements, but if, if you are someone like me, I mean, through the night, every five minutes, the blood pressure cuff inflates, it will just push up my blood pressure because I will be so upset that I can't, yeah. can't sleep yeah, because of the device. But um, at-home testing, it's probably in my mind also the best. Yeah. No, I think we agree on that one. Um, so just recap, we've talked about smoking, we've talked about the blood pressure, and 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 if you can maybe just tell us what the statistics say between having a systolic blood pressure of 115 to a, so let's say, a, a systolic blood pressure of 140. What the increase in rate of... of, of uh, oh, that's almost a four-fold four four increase in, in, in risk. I, I, let's look at the... To diagnose blood pressure, we, we use guidelines. So there's two guidelines basically out there. It's the American Heart Association, their guidelines, and the European uh, Society of Cardiology. So they've got different guidelines for for blood pressure, which is quite interesting. Here in South Africa, we tend to follow the European guidelines. So the American Heart Association says that the normal blood pressure is 120 over 80. And then between 120, uh, 120 to 129 and 180 to 85, um, that's, that's um, raised blood pressure. Whereas the European society says that 
under 120, 180 is optimal, but 120 to 129 and 80 to 85 is still seen as normal. So there's a slight difference between the two. And we in South Africa lean more towards their um, view on it. But if you go look at the sprint trial that they've done, so this is a big trial, approximately 10,000 patients that they used. And they, they, they used patients that, that was a secondary prevention trial. So all the patients, they, they did have some form of cardiovascular disease. Um, they had two groups. The one group, they targeted a systolic blood pressure of 140. And the second group, they targeted a blood pressure of 120. And um, probably at about three years, I think it was a five-year trial, I can't remember, but about around about three, they said they stopped the trial because the group with the 120 target just did so much better. So, so it's they, almost unethical to keep going with the trial. Exactly. So because they had you're to almost stop it. killing people with a blood yeah. pressure that's slightly raised. Yeah. So so that was 120 versus 140. Given it was a secondary trial, so all the people did have some form of disease. So, um, but. I think we in South Africa often will accept the blood pressure of 135 or maybe even 140 and think it's okay. It might not be okay, especially if you look at the data out there. So overall, lower seems better in that sense. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, again, me and you agree on this one. And I think um, if you think about when when you talk to patients about cardiovascular disease, the first thing they say, I don't want to be on statins, but people forget that blood pressure is such a major risk factor. And again, we, we've said it in the previous two uh, podcasts, but we, 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 we talk about this prevention uh, the same as saving. The earlier you start, the better your results will be. So again, with this uh, blood pressure, start early, and and if it looks abnormal, keep keep checking. Don't let your doctor say, "Oh, 140 is okay. We don't treat it now." It is a major risk factor. And I agree 100. percent I I'm all, almost of the opinion that everyone should have their own blood pressure um, cuff at home, and every three months or so. You, you do your readings at home, you write it down, you do two readings a day, morning reading, afternoon reading, you do it for a week, so you've got 14 readings in total, get the average, if it's normal, carry on with life. And then three, four months later, you do go through the same exercise. Then you will pick it up when your blood pressure starts to, to increase, because it's also known as a silent killer. Because you don't, you don't, often you don't have any symptoms of high blood pressure, only once you get to the levels, very high levels, you start to get the headaches and things like that. But early on in the disease, you might not know that your blood pressure is raised. Um, so having a blood pressure cuff at home is a good idea. Agreed, agreed. Okay, let's move on. Um, the one thing that, that a lot of people know about ACVD or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or if we say it in layman terms, the clogging of your pipes, something has to clog it on the inside and brings us to the old word of cholesterol. So cholesterol broken down. Maybe you can just tell us how that, that particles look and why we call them what we call them. Yeah, so cholesterol is always the bad guy out there. But 
maybe why why do we need cholesterol? I think let's start there. It's it, it's not the bad guy. We need cholesterol. It's very important. Um, if you want to say something about why we need cholesterol, yeah. So cholesterol. I mean, the main thing about cholesterol, it actually makes the size of our cells. That is actually the building block of our cell membrane. And then the other thing is we need it for most of our hormones get made out of out of cholesterol. So, I mean, it's a major, major building block. So if you take all the cholesterol away, it's like glucose. You'll die in seconds. You need a lot of it and you need it around. But genetically, some of us are programmed that we do not handle it very well. Um, and in and if we look at 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 how we take it in, we get it, and and it, how it's metabolized, that's probably more the problem than actually what we've got inside of us. So um, if you uh, yeah, so maybe we can just say cholesterol is broken down into um, the, the serum cholesterol is the the, the the major part and then it's hdl ldl and triglycerides that's the three that's the main ones yes um and as you said cholesterol is so important for all the hormones and cell membranes and for for bile and things like that so the body so the, the cholesterol itself we need it and all cells produce cholesterol but some will need more under certain certain circumstances so the thing now is that the cholesterol needs to be moved around in the blood. But cholesterol, if, if you think of it, it's, it's a fatty substance. So, and and it needs to be transported in, in through your blood. So, we need, the body found a way to transport the cholesterol, and that's in the lipoproteins. Um, and that's where the lipoproteins come into play. So that's where you've mentioned the LDL and the HDL. That's type of lipoproteins there. So um, maybe do you want to explain just more or less what, what is a lipoprotein? Yeah, so uh, as you said, this fat lobule, if you think about fat in water, it will go to the top and lie there as fat, but we need to have cholesterol dissolve in the water or in the, our plasma. So what happens is you get the protein on the outside as a ring, and then inside you have the fat. So the protein protein captures the uh, pro, uh, the the the, um, the fat on the inside, so it can actually move inside our our, our veins and, and arteries, and that is then lipo for the fat and the protein around that that captures this, and that will be the L at the end of your HDL LDL. So that's the high density lipoprotein, which will then be its high density. So there's a small area, so uh, it's 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 more packed inside in in, in a smaller molecule, whereas the LDL, um, which the old people used to call the bad cholesterol, which not really the problem, but in any case, it, it, it the the LDL is a lower density, so a larger particle. Yes, yeah, so there's two families of of, of lipoproteins, and we, it's basically the ApoB family and the ApoA family, where the VDL and IDL and LDL for all falls into the ApoB family, of which LDL is the one that we'll talk about yeah. mainly. And then the HDL falls into the ApoA family. So the LDL mainly transports cholesterol to sites in the body where it's needed. And the HDL 
mainly gather cholesterol and take it back to the liver so that the liver can then decide to either make more cholesterol in LDL, um, pack it in, into LDL and send it to other places or actually excrete it through the bile into the gut so it can get excreted and, and lower the levels. Um, and, and that's where the old saying of good and bad cholesterol came from because the LDL we know now is causal in, in, in cardiovascular disease. But a lot of people also think that if the HDL is high, the so-called good cholesterol, they're okay. But it might not be the case. And I think that's important to understand. That's why we don't really want to refer to bad or good cholesterol. We just need to understand that the high HDL is not necessarily good because there's a couple of conditions where you can think of them almost as, as loading trucks. When the HDL goes to the cell to collect the excess cholesterol and take it back to the liver, there might be a problem where the HDL can't get rid of the cholesterol. So you'll have a nice high HDL on your blood test and you think you're okay, but it can't get rid of the cholesterol, it can't give it back to the liver because there might be a receptor problem there or other genetic issues. And then what happens is it bumps into an LDL, which transports cholesterol to the body and hands that cholesterol to the LDL particle, okay, through cholesterol is the transferred protein. So it's almost a double negative then. That's a double negative then. Mm. So thinking about ratios like LDL to HDL ratio and things like that, that, that's not necessarily correct. So we must be very careful thinking that if my HDL is high, I'm okay. Of course, it might not be the case. So, and and that's why we often look at ApoB specific. So we'll focus a lot on ApoB and see what exactly is going on with the ApoB because studies have shown that LDL and ApoB is causal in cardiovascular disease. But Rudy, can you maybe just, before we go further here, just explain the, in, in the plaque formation in the artery, just, just basic how it works so that we can just put it together and where the LDL particles then causes the problem, we can take and talk about that after that. Yeah, so if, so if we bring it back again to where we've got the pipe, so that is your artery that runs to your, to your heart or to your, to your brain, which we're trying to protect. But here we come, the, the artery gets hurt in, in some way either by high blood pressure or by chemical uh, like smoking, or if, if a, um, a LDL particle finds itself inside the intima for some reason, sometimes it'll get stuck and it'll, it, it, it'll, um, it, it'll be absorbed by, so there'll be a macrophage that'll pull it in, foam cells, and then um, it's quite a it's quite an involved process, but if you think about the whole at the end of the whole process, a plaque will form inside and actually narrow your your pipe. Absolutely. So people know about angina. So angina is when you do exercise or effort, like walking or running, and you start to get chest pain. And the reason for the angina is exactly what you said, is that pipe is narrowing and you don't get enough blood flow. Okay. But I think the one thing that we need to understand in this process is that most heart attacks, it's not about the amount of narrowing that you have there, but it's the plaque that ruptures and then it clots together 
all the platelets come clots together and then you form a clot in that artery and then suddenly there's no blood flow in the heart and that causes a myocardial infarction. So in the process that you've explained, a myocardial infarction can happen much earlier. It can happen at the 40 or 50% occlusion of that artery and not necessarily at 80 or 90% occlusion. So it's just something that we need to keep in mind. Um, so you, you've explained how the, the artery will narrow from the plaque formation. Um, and I think it's important to understand that the LDL is a causal character in this whole picture because there's a lot of naysayers out there and a lot of people talk about inflammation as a cause of, of cardiac disease and not the cholesterol, not the LDL. Um, so we might need to say something about that because in my mind, you need the LDL particle in the artery, okay, to form the plot. If there's no LDL particles there, even in the setting of inflammation, you can't form a plaque. Agreed. And I think that's very important to understand. Yes, inflammation plays a big role. Yes, if you do have inflammation in your body and you get LDL particles, the process will go faster. Yeah. But if you don't have any LDL particles there, you can't form the plaque. Yeah. Before we go further, I, I just want to make sure that we don't miss this in today's um, podcast is while we're talking about the, the lipoproteins, lipoprotein A is something we haven't talked about, which is quite important. So um, again, just bringing it back to yourself, it, it is a genetic risk factor that, yes. that you've got and you've researched why it lifts that LDL danger so much. Yeah, so, so each little lipoprotein, if you go look at an LDL lipoprotein, you'll see there's an ApoB particle on, on the membrane, crinkled around the particle. So you can imagine a, a round particle with a little crinkle around it, which is the ApoB particle. And then lipo little a is another attachment particle, which basically makes it easier for that particle to attach to the endothelium and into the into the, the endothelium lining um, and hence the increased risk of, of, of entering into the vein. And to take it one step back about the particle size, because when we talk about LDL and we say LDL is causal in cardiovascular disease, we need to understand that we measure LDL cholesterol in concentration. Okay, so when you measure your cholesterol, it's measured in concentration. It doesn't give you an idea of the particle number. Okay, so we know particle number is very important. In essence, you can say for the same concentration, you can have many small particles or less bigger particles for the same concentration. And that's where ApoB comes in. So the ApoB, if you know on each little LDL, there's an ApoB. So if you know your ApoB value, you can then um, determine if you've got small or big molecules. And that's why we, we so go on about ApoB, ApoB. So each LDL molecule has got the ApoB um, particle on, on, on the molecule. So if your ApoB value is high, it means that you've got many ApoB particles 
and therefore you've got many LDL molecules and they must be the small ones. And that's the ones that's causing the problem, getting into the lining, getting stuck. If you add on lipoprotein little a, the little chain that's added to that lipoprotein, it's just more, more easy to, to get stuck into the endothelial line. And that's, that, I think that's, that's the one message that should, or the second message of the blood pressure that should leave the listeners today, they should leave with that. You have to know your lipoprotein A value, which is pretty much set for your life. So you, you need to know if it's high or not. That is genetic. Mm. And then your ApoB value is something that you have to know. So if your doctor is not drilling down into ApoB yet, you need to either tell your doctor to do it or to to get yourself a new doctor because that for longevity, you need to know those values. Yeah, and I think because the, the lipoprotein little a is genetic determined, I think it's important that you need to know that value in your 20s. I mean, that was my case. So you need to know it in your 20s or even before that because that will change your approach to the the whole lipid saga. So you will you'll probably have, go for a lower value. You'll definitely make sure that your ApoB value is low because you, you want the, the bigger molecules. You don't want that small molecules that can enter easily. Um, and obviously, then you're going to avoid all the other risk factors. So you're gonna, your life child, um, lifestyle will be slightly different if you know if your little um, A is raised or not. And you can do you, – you, it takes – 10, 20, 30 years for this disease to develop. And as you explained the formation of, 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 of the plaque, it doesn't happen overnight. So there's certain things we need to know early, and that's, that's the one thing that we need to know early. And, it, and, and to also to know your ApoB early in life, it's a good thing because then you can do lifestyle changes still. And then if you can't fix it with lifestyle changes, only then, then you might consider um, treating it with medicine, depending on other risk factors. What is your cardiac risk on the calculators and things like that? Yeah, I think I think looking back now, if your grandfather or one of your um, male uh, family members had died in a very early age, like forty-five, and you were diagnosed with something, I've I've read somewhere in this week that you uh, that you might want to send your son at around. Uh, 12 already to to get those values um which is which is quite interesting familial hyper uh, hypercholesterolemia starts very very early depositing um ldl no that's that's obviously the one that we don't want to miss and and it's 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 common it's one in 250 it's a common disease so you need to pick that up very early. I mean, they start children ages six on on, on treatment already if it's if, if their values are high. So you don't want to miss that. So the idea that you only test these things once you're old is not correct. There's a couple of things. It's a lipoprotein little a you need to know early, and then obviously the if if there's any family history um, or the possibility of familial hypercholesterolemia, you need to test much much earlier than that. And to know to know your values there, um, and they've shown. I'm, I mean, they've shown they can add 10, 15 years to 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 those kids' lifespan if they treat them earlier. That's 
that's loads. Fifteen years, that is. Yeah. And that's fifteen good years. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're trying to to say is you no one no one is gonna live forever. What we want to increase is our is our health span. So we don't want to increase our lifespan by twenty years. You want to be healthy for as long as you can and not have any other um uh, uh, trickling diseases is, is probably one of the things I want to say. But if we look at the the cholesterols, I mean, we're getting a little bit technical, so I want to move on and say, okay, but what can we do? What can we do about those things? We've got the values now. So, I mean, there's a lot of people listening, diet, does it make a big difference? Does it not? Debatable. So most of the cholesterol in your body you actually make it in your cells. And that's a problem. You know, 80% plus of the cholesterol is made in your cells and probably less than 20% absorbed um, in your gut. The, the actual cholesterol molecules in, in, in food is a bigger molecule. It's got an extra like ester on it. So it can't be absorbed in the, in the small bowel that well. So there's a very little, little effect on the, on, the, uh, on the blood cholesterol you see on a test, unfortunately. Yeah, so um, I think I think what we're trying to say is, if you've got a cholesterol problem, it's difficult to do something about it. And if you can, you can do about twenty percent change with diet. So, uh, meaning moving to a Mediterranean type diet where your fats are a little bit better fats, and you're and you're eating more fish. So your omega threes. I mean, we've all known that they change your profile slightly, but that is your big profile like we used to know it serum cholesterol hdl ldl triglycerides so and and that brings us to the triglycerides yeah so that's the one where diet has a big effect on the triglycerides because that that's raised by a high carbohydrate diet so there we can make a huge difference in the triglycerides so just to bring bring everybody in again, so this will be in our next podcast. Is is the metabolic type disease? Is um, if if you get too much sugar, it will be made into triglycerides at the end of the day by the liver. So and but we'll get to that one. But in that piece, you can make a major difference to 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 cholesterol. But I mean, we've we've all heard about the people saying, "But I eat fatty choppies, and and it doesn't make any difference to to m my cholesterol." So, in that sense, the the research was flawed because most of the research would, was done on rabbits and um, and animals, which their cholesterol they actually yeah, they, absorb cholesterol. They and and they form plaques because if you give them the cholesterol, they will absorb yeah. it. Whereas humans is different, so um, that 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 has gone out the window. Yeah, and still, even with all the information out there, people still, you know, there's still the naysayers saying that LDL cholesterol is not causal. But fortunately, now with genetics, we we can with very high accuracy say that it is most likely causal, and you know, and in most of us, we we know it's causal. Um, to know if something is causal is sometimes difficult because there's co-founding factors. So if someone's got a high LDL, they might be a smoker or they might have a bad diet or they don't exercise. And those things can play into the risk profile of that patient. And therefore, some people might say the LDL is not the causal factor in this. But 
with the Mendelian randomization studies, which is based on the genetic studies, there's no doubt anymore. So it's 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 quite a difficult type of concept to explain to people. And um, I'll try, but but please, all the <laughs> colleagues out there, don't sacrifice me for my explanation on it. But basically, it means that we've been randomized at birth according to your genes. So there's certain genes that might lead to a very low LDL cholesterol, and there's certain genes that might lead to a very high cholesterol. And in if we group the people together with that genetic abnormalities in the high group and the genetic abnormalities in the low group, and we compare the cardiovascular incidence between the two, we can clearly see that the ones with a high LDL has a higher risk, and the ones with a lower LDL has a lower risk, independent of body weight, smoking, exercise, sleeping. So that's a nature's way of doing a randomized trial. So the evidence is out there, and, and, and we need to accept that LDL is the causal factor in cardiovascular disease. Um, so, yes, these other factors will increase the, 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 the speed at which it develops or might attribute to it, but you still you need that LDL to, to cause a problem. Agreed. So before so we, we talked about the maybe you can you can do something with the diet, but before we talk about treatment, we need to know if there's actually a problem in the pipe because we, we actually also know that it it's not always that you will pick it up early and with all the tests we've got at the moment. So in the previous podcast, I talked about um, a, a stress EZG test. Uh, maybe you can tell us what we can do before that even. Yeah, so from a testing point of view of, of I mean, the basic one is a, a resting ECG, which in preventative health, it doesn't give us much information. It gives us some information on the electric, electrical activity of the heart. And if there's some ischemia in the heart, then, then you'll see it on the resting ECG, but that's, that's now treatment. Yeah, yeah, and I think, so, I mean, we don't even, in, in InnerSight, we don't even do a, a, a normal ECG anymore. No, no. We, we think it's got very little value for a normal client that comes in and wants to live long. It's really just the baseline test. So normal ECG, not of much value here. Yeah. So I, I think once we've established your risk and we had a look at your blood values, and we think you might be at increased risk, there's only two tests really to tell us more about the disease. And that's the, the CAC scan or the CT angio. That's the, and, and, and obviously the CT angio is the Rolls Royce. Um, okay, but, so just, just, just to bring you back is, uh, is a CAC scan meaning a coronary arterial calcium scan. So yes. we're looking for calcium. So if we take, I, I went through that a little bit quick earlier. I didn't want to make it a, a physiological um, conversation, but with the, the, the intimate breaking and the LDL going in, once the plaque forms, the body's way to fix that plaque is to line line it with calcium. So, and and that you can pick up on a scan. Yes. So that's actually late in the disease. Okay. So, but but the, given what's available, the CAC scan is still a very valuable test, um, and it gives us a lot of information. 
and not done a lot in South Africa, but it, it, we talked about the European Cardiac Society. It's one of the, everyone should have a, a CAC scan. Yeah, so, so it's an easy test. It's a low-dose CT, CT scan. There's no contrast, nothing involved. Um, unfortunately here, medical insurance doesn't pay for it, so it's an out-of-pocket expense, but it gives us a lot of information. The guidelines state that you, you look at the value, so they'll, they'll do the scan and basically they'll look for, for calcifications and then they'll score it according to a system and you'll get a number back. And the higher the number, the bigger the problem. If you've got a very low number, you've already starting to develop um, cardiovascular disease because there's already calcifications. Yeah. So don't be fooled by a low number. There's already something going on there. Yes, you might not, according to the guidelines, start any treatment or any interventions at that point, but in my mind, you're quite far down the road already. The one thing with the CAC scan, it doesn't tell us about the narrowing of the artery. It gives us an idea of calcifications, but it doesn't tell us the size of the pipe. So the only way you'll know that is through a CT angio, but it still gives us a lot of information. So if you on the border, if you, if you consult a patient and you've figured out there's increased risk and you do a CAC scan and there's calcifications, then you need to act. If there's no calcifications, then you're a little bit in that area where you're uncertain because then you're still in the soft plaque area where there might be plaque, but you don't pick it up on a CAC scan yet. And about 15% of CAC scans with a zero score will still have soft plaque. And about 1% of those, and 10% of those, will actually have extensive soft plaque problems. And as I mentioned earlier that you that plot can still rupture and that's a problem but effectively it's still a good screening test for us for, yeah. for for what you pay for it compared to the ct anger which is much more expensive and you've got the the risk of you using a dye injecting a dye into the body so you might get a allergic reaction in a very low percentage but that's a possible risk factor, the CT scan has got almost no risk. Yeah, so just talking numbers, it's probably about three times more expensive for CT angio than a CAC scan, yes. if you have to pay for it yourself. Yes. Um, and I think that that's literally new stuff. I mean, when, when we were at med school, we were, we were still um, resting ECG, we would, I mean, we, we had people with, with unstable angina was like our, once people had chest pain, that was, then they had cardiac disease. We didn't even do a lot of stress ECGs at that point. But what we're trying to, to bring across to the listeners here is that, that there are tests that you can actually look inside now. So we're saying, know your numbers. So know your blood numbers, but now here's another test. Know your numbers. What is your CAC score? I mean, if your GP hasn't asked you what your CAC score is, ask him if he knows what a CAC score is, because that means he's up to date with what cholesterol is these days and what cardio cardiovascular disease is. Yeah, and, and as I said, that it's still a good screening test because you're – Effectively, this you've one point five percent chance that you might miss a serious lesion, and then that, that's that's not that bad. So you've got a ninety eight point five percent chance that that it's okay. 
Um, but you need to see it all together with the blood results, with the cardiac risk calculators, with the, the inflammation parameters, everything together. That CAC scan helps us a lot to make decisions on, on the way forward, on, on treatment, on how aggressive and things like that. And that's exactly what you will get at Innersight. You will get an assessment, you will get a calculator that tells you where on the spectrum for your age you lie. What 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 are your chances of getting this? And then where your 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 bloods will, will filter into that, blood pressure filter into that. And then we say, okay, but we probably recommend a CAC scan or a CT angio. And then we need to start thinking treatment. Okay. So and so obviously the, the CT angios are Rolls Royce because then you can visualize everything. You can see the calcifications, you can see the narrowing of the of the vessels and, and, and that that's a Rolls Rolls Royce in, in in visualizing the arteries. Um less invasive than the traditional angiogram, um, but still you use dye. Mm, but it's a very low risk with, with allergies there. Uh and, and, and it's done in a hospital setting, so they've got the equipment if there's a problem to to manage the allergy in such a case. But yes, um, the financial burden on that, so we probably go for the CAC scan first, but there's the odd patient that you'll, you'll try and motivate to, to get the angio done. And again, coming back, so the earlier we can ask you to do these tests, the, the more time we've got to get them in the right order to have more information. I mean, you can take six months to a year to get all the stuff together. You don't have to do it all today, except if you've got a very, very high risk score, we, we would try and motivate you to get that done. Yeah, absolutely. And because it, it takes years and decades to develop, it's also gonna, t you've, you've got time in the management if you're early enough. You, you don't wanna end up in late stage disease and then only realize there's a problem like what happened with me, because then poop stands in, and now you're in secondary prevention, which is never the same as, as primary prevention. Yeah, and you don't know your numbers from when you were in that setting, but with how it looks with the retrospectroscope, you probably shouldn't have had stents. You, no, you probably, probably could have been aggressive yeah. medical management. Um, so with, if, without pointing fingers, because that's how you know data changes. And, yeah. And um, we can see that it's probably, probably warranted a aggressive intervention medically before doing these things. And that brings us to treatment. Ah, statins. <laughs> people, people scream statins, statins, statins. Okay, but statins are still number one in the treatment line. Yes. Um, Most studied drug ever. Most research behind it ever of all drugs available. And I think before we go any further, uh, quite a lot of research has now come out in the last probably six months about the amount of, because a lot of people say, but it'll make my muscles sore and I can't be an athlete anymore. And uh, a lot of complaints about statins, but it's less than 5% mm. of people actually do have major problems on statins. So they, they get a very bad name, but we are both on statins for that reason. We are very early. I mean, in the olden days with my numbers, probably wouldn't have been prescribed a statin. 
but the amount of uh, change is made in my upper B level, my upper B level is five times less now than it was four years ago. Um, so, I mean. Yeah, amazing. I'm obviously on secondary prevention, so I'm on mega doses of statins. Um, I do have some muscle issues with the statins, but given the scenario, it's acceptable and, it, and, and it's okay. It's, it's not that bad. Um, I, you need to keep the long game in mind. Um, but it's not just statins. So there's a couple of medicines that we can use, but statins is usually the first line one. And, and for us, reservostatin. Yes. Reservostatin. Uh, you can you, start low. You can start at a 2.5 milligram dose, build it up to a 40 milligram dose if needed in, in certain high-risk patients. But um, obviously, we seldom go there. Usually, usually 20 is the max. Um, and then, and, and and then the new thinking is bring one up slightly and then add the second. Add the second one, yes. So, so you can even go lower on the on the first one on the statin and add the second one earlier, especially in people that that do have some side effects from the statin. So so the statins they work on basically reducing um, the formation of cholesterol. Yeah, it's this en enzyme that gets blocked there. It's that HMG, uh, acetylcholine reductase, that's inhibited. So you, the one of the precursors to cholesterol is reduced. So you, the liver actually makes less cholesterol, and subsequently the liver needs cholesterol to pack it and send it to other places. So it sends out more LDL receptors on the liver cell. So it collects more LDL out of the blood. So it pulls it back into the liver to repack it or excrete it. And so effectively you're reducing the LDL cholesterol um, through the statin. So that's the one group of, of statins. The second one that we, we use now is the one that blocks the absorption of the cholesterol. So if I say the block the absorption is when you excrete bile, cholesterol and bile form, um, a lot of it gets reabsorbed into the system, so you basically block that pathway. Yeah, and that's so, a zettabine. Yeah, yeah. So and 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 that is what we were saying about it is your own cholesterol actually feeding back into yourself. Yes. So there's a there's a system of you need the bile, the bile gets dropped in your in your um, small intestine and it gets reabsorbed and that's the that's what you um what you're blocking with the isotrol. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you block that reabsorption of the cholesterol. So then you then you tackle it from two different pathways um, to reduce the, uh, the cholesterol load or the LDL. We're actually focusing on the LDL and ApoB particles, but effectively that's what you're doing. So uh, if you if you're very against statins, that might be a way to start. So you can start yes. with the isotrol, and side effects there is pretty much you're losing cholesterol in the poo so you might have a little bit more fatty poo so that, that can be there and you can have a little bit of muscle soreness there as well uh, yeah but much less well um and the fortunate thing is also that with with that one people that it depends on your risk as well so so you can go low on the statin and add the zetamide early so to just reduce the risk of of, of developing side effects Mm. But we, we these days we start the second line therapy very early. 
you know, in the past we would have kept you and pushing up the the statin, pushing up the statin, but nowadays we're just adding those etamides because yeah. it's, you tackle it from two two different points. Yeah, and and the listeners might have heard about energy. So energy is a mix that's already made of the two. So, but that is with the simvastatin and and then the isotemide. Yeah, in, in, in one in, in, in one, one tablet, tablet, which is yeah. which is nice. It's a it's a one tablet to mm. take. Mm. Um, and and that works well for many people. I mean, you still get more reduction in LDL from from a statin than from a zetamide. Yeah. But if your risk is of such that you just need a little bit of reduction in LDL, a zetamide might just do that. Um, and maybe with a very low dose statin, with that, then uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, and looking back, if you could tell your young self, like. <laughs> don't don't try a cigarette early so i mean we were all young so try to stay off cigarettes uh, and then if those two drugs were or uh, simvastatin was there when we were students but there weren't any of the other statins around yet but i mean now with reserve statin there's a lot less muscle issues and all that so, yeah. absolutely and even even with myself i had to put myself on azetamide um because I was on a high dose stat and I got my 50% reduction in, in LDL and that's seen as good enough. But looking at my APOB values, it wasn't good enough. So adding the Zetamide, I'm now on target with, with APOBs, which is nice. And I, I've experienced absolutely no side effects of adding the Zetamide to the, to the statin. So, so for me, it works quite well. So if you've, if you've got a value, I think we need to just put some values behind this. Um, so you want your lipoprotein below the, the, the reference value. So that's, that's the one thing. And then the reference value for APOB in South Africa is still 1.2. But the thinking is much lower. Much lower. So we want... I mean, we, we're looking at 0.5 now for, yeah. for our clients if we can, but definitely 0.75. Yeah, yeah. So we're aiming for between 0.5 and 0.75. That's what we're aiming for. The The normal value of 1.2 is too high and much too high. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about those two drugs and then we've got niacin. Niacin, yeah. So, so the thing with niacin, a lot of people ask if they can use that because that's... That's a very old drug. So I just the, wanted to say very old school. <laughs> very old school. Um, it, it does increase HDL, but all the studies, there's, there's no study showing that it actually decreases incidence of events. And that's a big thing. And it doesn't, you get the flushing and the side effects from the niacin. And initially people thought that raising the HDL is a good thing, but that's actually just raising the number and not the function of the HDL molecule. So I don't know if anyone using it anymore. Um, and they said, yeah, so, I, I, I was just thinking while you were talking, just just for numbers' sake, just letting the clients know or the listeners know. I mean, if you get your ApoB level and you you treat your blood pressure, and you get your ApoB level to lower than 0.75, cardiac issues or cardiac IACVD moves from pretty much number one killer for you to lower than number 10. So it's yes. like it moves down your list so far that 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 is not one of your problems anymore. So now, I mean, talking about our four horsemen, it doesn't even count in there. It moves down to lower than 10th of, of the things that will kill you. And there's also a new medicine on the market, um, bimbidoic acid, 
which works similar to statins, also block the formation of a precursor to the statin, but with um, less side effects on, on the glucose metabolism. And it seems it might even help with fatty liver disease and things like that as well. So that might also be an option in the future um, if, if you can't use a statin. And then we've also got the PCSK9 inhibitors, which is the Rolls-Royce of <laughs> lipid-lowering medicines, but they are very expensive. And basically, you only get one of those approved if you've got severe, severe cardiac disease and secondary prevention. Um, yeah, and prescribed by either cardiologist or yeah, lipidologist. Yeah. So, but you get uh, a good reduction in LDL with those, which is a monoclonal antibody that gets injected every two to four weeks. And it just blocks um, the degradation of the, the, the LDL receptor on the liver cell. So it, it prevents that from being breakdown. So you, you keep your LDL receptors longer so they can take LDL out of the, out of the circulation. So medical aids pay very easily for your statins and for your Isotrol and those guys, but uh, they cost like 300 bucks a month, whereas the PCSK inhibitors is like 12,000 rand a month. So yeah, they very are expensive. very, very, very expensive. Still, but there will probably be a, um, a generic come out at some point. So that'll that'll change the, uh, the scenario. The scenario, yes. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Um, yeah, so sorry, I'm just looking through our list that we just make sure that we've touched everything. Yeah, we can get derailed quite quickly with cardiovascular disease. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a big part of of what we do and what we want to do is keeping our grandfather's husbands and sons because why why are we not focusing on the girls that much at this point is um they have the protection of the estrogen for so long in their life the moment menopause hits yeah. their risk becomes the same as the boys so we, i mean we we cannot drop them out of the uh, out of the uh, equation at all but it's for nice for them early to know, like it would be for the boys to be at 20, for the girls to know at late 30s or early 40s, yes, you would want to know their numbers because you can treat them early as well. Yeah, so they, they, they're about 10 years behind the men, but I've just seen a study with the increase of metabolic syndrome, with increase of uh, obesity and insulin resistance, that figure starting to change. So they're starting to develop cardiovascular disease much earlier. So it might not be that 10 year gap for long. Yeah, so I, th I think in that sense, and maybe that's, that's where we should leave this podcast for today is we've, we've talked about um, the, the, the blood pressure, we've talked about lipids, and we've talked about smoking, so metabolic disease or the disease of affluence the, 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 that we have too much. That is what we will talk about next time. Yes. Metabolic disease coming next. Thank you for listening to us for, for the third podcast. Thanks, Rudy. And we'll see you in a month's time. Awesome.